welcome to the water cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. Glad you're with us. It's Thursday, November 19, 2020. We have a major new twist today. Mass cheating. Those are the words of President Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. He held a major press conference with the president's team of lawyers behind him. So today in the nation's capital, Giuliani and all the president's lawyers, kind of sounds like a movie, uh, they all came out forcefully to say that the media is corrupt by blowing off the evidence of voter fraud in this election. Here are some of what Giuliani had to say. Because there's not a singular voter fraud in one state. This pattern repeats itself in a number of states. Almost exactly the same pattern, which um, to any experienced investigator, prosecutor, would suggest that there was a, a plan from a centralized place to execute these various acts of voter fraud specifically focused on big cities and specifically focused on, as you would imagine, big cities controlled by Democrats and particularly focused on big cities that have a long history of corruption. The number of voter fraud cases in Philadelphia could fill a library. Just a few weeks ago, there was a conviction for voter fraud, and one, two weeks before that. And I've often said, I guess sarcastically, but it's true, the only surprise I would have found in this is if Philadelphia hadn't cheated in this election. More on all of this throughout the show. Also today, dead people. Question for you, is that a cemetery that you're seeing? Or a Joe Biden rally. I mean, by the way, I got to tell you, these dead folks uh, are not going to be with us live today on the air because they're dead uh, and we're unavailable for comment. But many of them did vote. The question is, how in the world did that happen? We explore the messy voter registration rolls in America. But first, our newsmaker, famed constitutional lawyer Alan Dershowitz and host of the Dersh Show podcast, we had a long, wide-ranging discussion with him when we get his take on the Trump legal strategy ahead. Alan, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. So what's the way forward, do you think, at this point with the, with the Trump legal strategy? I mean, how do they maneuver from here, Alan? Well, their strategy is not to get Trump to 270, but to deprive Biden of the 270 so that the election goes to the House, where the Republicans have a majority of state delegations. In order to do that, they have to make sure that at least 36, 37 of the electors uh, aren't certified, either because the election results are turned around like they're trying to do in Pennsylvania or because there's going to be ongoing litigation and the secretaries of state uh, won't be able to certify an absolute result uh, at the time of mid-December when the electors meet to vote. It's very uphill. It would require a perfect storm of judicial decisions, vote counts going the way they want them to go, and secretaries of state, governors and legislatures supporting their position. But it's the only hope they have at this point. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you, because you mentioned uphill. So I am wondering about the certification process. I mean, this this idea that states wouldn't certify their results by December 14th. I mean, I, I just can't imagine any of that happening, though, though that's clearly the, the game plan here. Well, it's possible if you had really on. Let, let's take the following hypothetical. Let's assume there's something to the argument about the computer glitches. I don't know that there is. I've heard the allegations by very respected lawyers, and so I have to give some credence to that, but I haven't seen the evidence. 
let's assume there are major computer glitches that mm -hmm. might turn around the election results in Arizona or in Nevada or in Wisconsin or in Michigan or in Georgia or in Pennsylvania. And let's assume they have a trial and the trial is ongoing. Experts are being called. Uh, it wouldn't be a jury trial. It would probably just be a judge trial. And let's assume the trial just couldn't end by December 15th. I can imagine a sympathetic secretary of state saying, sorry, we just can't certify. Remember, the 12th Amendment of the Constitution talks about a majority of all the electors appointed. The word appointed doesn't seem like it's probably the most apt phrase because most of them are not appointed, they're elected, but you know the Constitution doesn't tell the states how to select electors. So the, the next question that comes up is if there are no appointed electors, say, from Arizona, do you reduce the total number of electors by that number or do you just take it away from the required majority? These are questions of first impression. Nobody has ever, not only has nobody ever decided these questions, I don't think anybody has ever thought of these questions. <laughs> Right. So then it becomes a constitutional question here as it relates to, we know what's in the Constitution, though I'd like you to explain that further in terms of state legislatures having the constitutional <laughs> ability to do it, uh, but there is the constitutional mayhem issue. You know, what's good for the country? Is there a balance here, Alan? There always is, and uh, you always think that what's in the Constitution is good for the country, but not necessarily. Remember, the Constitution has been able to adapt to almost every crisis that we face, but they couldn't adapt to, to uh, the, uh, the segregation and slavery and secession. And we needed a civil war in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to resolve that issue. So, you know, what's good for the country is not always the same as what's good for a particular candidate. In two previous elections that we all know about, when Nixon was defeated by Kennedy, and Nixon really felt the election had been stolen from him in Illinois and other places. He decided in the best interest of the country to concede. Also, when Al Gore believed that the election had been stolen from him by a five to four partisan Supreme Court decision, he decided not to fight, to concede. Uh, that's not Trump's style. Um, he's not going to concede unless he believes that the uh, matter is completely resolved. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't cooperate with the transition. There's no reason he can't cooperate with the transition while still not conceding and still going forward with his challenges and still maintaining that he won the election. He can still say, look, COVID, uh, other issues, let's let the potential possible president who's going to come in to replace me in on information that will help him get a head start if he's the president, although I'm going to fight to make sure he doesn't become the president. He could do that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you can address this part. We had Kaylee McEnany on the show the other day, actually yesterday. She talked about that the, the White House right now is doing everything, and this is her quote, statutorily required regarding the transition process, and she punts it to the GSA uh, on this. Uh, what's your sense about what the White House is required or, or not required to do in a transition uh, at this point? I think she's right. I think that uh, statutory requirements are relatively minimal. We've never had this issue before. Remember, there was no transition cooperation during the days of Bush versus Gore until it went to the Supreme Court because nobody knew who was going to be the, the president. And the 9-11 the Commission said that may have contributed to our lack of preparation for 9-11. That may have been a little apocalyptic. But mm -hmm. um, I do think that in the age of COVID, you should go beyond the statutory requirements and start cooperating in the medical best interest of all Americans. 
I, not to get into the weeds on all these states, but with Georgia, and it just seems like it's a mess down in Georgia. They keep finding it ballots, it seems, every day. Uh, but then you got Pennsylvania, you got Michigan. Is, is there a certain state you think the, the Trump campaign has a better shot in? I know you need multiple states, but are, do you, where are yeah. you most concerned about what's been happening from a legal standpoint? Well, I think the state where he has the best chance is Pennsylvania, because there it's a wholesale, not a retail challenge. Retail challenges are a few votes here, a few votes there. In Pennsylvania, there is a group of votes. We don't know how many there are, probably in excess of, of several thousand, uh, which were submitted before the close of business on Election Day, but not received until after. Mm -hmm. The legislature said no to those votes. The Supreme Court of the state said yes to those votes. Uh, Justice Alito has said those votes have to be segregated. And I suspect that if a case went up to the Supreme Court and there were enough of those votes to make a difference in the election, the Supreme Court would rule in favor of Trump. So I think that's his strongest case to turn around Pennsylvania. But the numbers have to support him. Right now, it looks like yeah. Trump's behind by 60,000 votes. So he needs 60,000 challenged write-in ballots. I don't think he has those, but we don't know the numbers yet. Right. By the way, on a separate topic, I want to ask you, you put up the other day about on the Dirt Show, you talked about, will I be banned from speaking yeah. at Harvard? <laughs> the media has reported that Harvard students are circulating a petition to ban anyone who worked for the White House. In other words, you from speaking yeah. at Harvard. Uh, McCarthyism with a question mark? Expand on that real quick, Alan. Oh, of course, it's McCarthyism. Not only that, there was a petition to take away my status as emeritus professor because wow. I stood up on the floor of the Senate as a patriot and defended the Constitution. These are radical students who don't care about free speech, don't care about real diversity. They want everybody to be like them and are trying to ban people like me from speaking at Harvard, where I was for 50 years. They forget that they're not Harvard. They're just the temporary student body at Harvard. Harvard is its tradition, its alumni, its faculty, its past faculty, its donors, its supporters, you name it. And we're going to fight back and not allow these student bullies to bring McCarthyism to Harvard. When I first came Mm -hmm. uh, to Harvard, it was still remembering the days of McCarthyism. Harvard had a bad experience with McCarthyism, as did my college, Brooklyn College. I thought those days were gone forever, but these young McCarthyites, these young radical um, people stirred on by AOC, she's the one who stirred this on. She wants yeah. to create blacklists against anybody who had any cooperation with the Trump administration, but we're going to fight it and we're going to win. Alan, thanks. And before we let you go, you know, Thanksgiving just around the corner. You know, be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about gefilte fish. I know it has nothing to do with Thanksgiving, but you're going to tell me that there's not going to be any gefilte fish at the table. I mean, this is, you know, from one Jew to another. I mean, is, is it going to be there or no? Remember the word gefilte just means stuffing. It just means filled up. So we're <laughs> going to have stuff. Uh, but, you know, I think somebody has promised me, if I spoke uh, to his group, that they would send me fresh gefilte fish for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so I can easily see gefilte fish is my first course. Turkey is my second course. It combines my love of America with my love of Judaism. What's <laughs> wrong with that? Alan Dershowitz, always a, a man of uh, many, many interesting words and analogies. Uh, Alan, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Big thanks to Alan Dershowitz here on The Water Cooler. We're back next with Kerry Sheffield, who was at that Giuliani press conference today. Back with more in a moment. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Rudy Giuliani calling it mass cheating on a huge scale, to coin a phrase from Donald Trump, a huge scale. Let's uh, bring in Kerry Sheffield, the uh, anchor of Just the News AM, who attended the Giuliani and all the president's lawyers briefing today. Uh, Kerry, you're with a guest there. Talk to us about what you've got. Hey there, David. Yes, we are here at the Republican Party headquarters, the GOP headquarters. And I'm here with Phil Klein, and I have to do the disclaimer. He's not working officially with the campaign or the RNC. He has his own project. It's called the Amistad Project. He's the director. However, he's working very closely in some legal challenges. I've I've interviewed Phil numerous times on my program to talk through some of these challenges that he's been pursuing for months at this point. This has been going on uh, for months due to the nature of the pandemic. And Phil was here today, uh, standing here beside the lawyers. Uh, He didn't speak at the event, so we're giving him a chance to speak here. What's the status on your projects and how are you collaborating with the campaign? Well, first of all, what you heard is a very compelling opening argument to the media to try to get out the truth about what is happening. And in fact, they mentioned hundreds of affidavits in all the swing states indicating the fraud that was occurring on election night. Now, what we've been involved in is looking and investigating back from election night. In other words, the method, how did they do this? And what you see is an orchestrated and concentrated effort of an unprecedented private-public partnership between private organizations and blue state governors to allow access to sensitive United States citizen information so they can manipulate the vote. Through these contracts, they were able to enter their own registered voters, rock the vote, had direct access in Michigan. We've asked the Secretary of State to allow us to see the contract 10 times. She's refused each time. This is a private-public partnership allowing a private activist organization to sit down and create voters at the computer. All of this was funded by Mark Zuckerberg, who teamed with David Plouffe and funneled his money directly into the core urban area, $400 million matching the federal government appropriations for elections that passed in March. $400 million telling election officials how they will do their job, what they will do, including boarding up windows, and he paid those election officials. So what's happened in America is Mark Zuckerberg, a billionaire, is in the counting room and America's been kicked out. And that undermines the entire integrity of this election. So your projects specifically are looking at Mark Zuckerberg and his influence, but are you, have you brought any individual suits? Because we heard today at this press conference with Rudy Giuliani that a number of these suits have been dismissed because there was no standing. So has the Amistad Project, have you faced cases where your cases were rejected because you didn't have standing, whether it was because you weren't a party, you weren't an actual voter in the state, or because the election hadn't actually occurred? What well, is actually a challenge for everybody. You have to wait to see the harm before you can sue on the harm. But we've had 24 lawsuits. One was dismissed. All of our lawsuits are proceeding. We intend to try and we intend to get at the evidence. And what I believe the American people need to demand right now is for Mark Zuckerberg to open the doors. He needs to show all of his communications between himself and David Plouffe and this organization called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. He needs to show us the plan because he is running a shadow government right now. 
He matched the federal government funding. It flowed directly into the urban core where we see all these problems. He's paying the election officials in there. It's Zucker boxes that were put up, and we created a two-tiered election system. I want to give you one example. Pennsylvania, Delaware County. Zuckerberg gave enough money for a Zucker box to be within one mile of every resident of that county. In the 59 counties that President Trump won, there's one box for every 1,100 square miles. Now, this is government saying, if you live in a Democrat stronghold, walk down the street and cast your ballot. If you're out in Republican territory, go, where's Waldo? Find the Zucker box and go on a weekend vacation because we're not going to help you. That's wrong. A two-tiered election system is a violation of equal protection. I firmly believe the United States Supreme Court will take this up. So we heard another issue at this press conference with Rudy Giuliani and the president's legal team on the issue of overvoting. What have you seen on this issue of overvoting? It's basically where there are more voters who showed up to vote on election day than are actually registered to vote on the books, as they say. The book uh, doesn't match up with who actually voted. Or in some cases, Mayor Giuliani said that there are actually more voters than there were even residents in these districts or these precincts. Tell us what you know about this overvoting situation. Well, let me begin with a question. As you know, it is intuitive to every American that before somebody votes, the state has to match that vote to an identity. And the states have still not released who voted on Election Day. Why not? Why not? Because they don't want you doing this analysis. They don't want you to know who voted on Election Day and what identities are used. Many of these states have set out the release of this data past the time that legally the president has to challenge the vote. Why? They have that information. Now they need to release it, and I'll tell you what, you can do the math when you see it. And what about in Michigan specifically, because there was the two canvassers who have said, or the, the canvassing board members who said they will not sign off because 71% of cases there was a mismatch uh, in Wayne County. Where, what is, explain for our viewers, what exactly is that 71%? 71%, the numbers that they have of votes don't match up to what they have in registered voters, and they can't reconcile the numbers. 71%. Does that mean 71% more people voted than were on the books, no. or that something else was off, it like a signature in, or in, something else? In 71 of the precincts, they don't know what happened. That's what it means. In 71% of the precincts, the systems failed. And so these two individuals said, we can't certify, and then they were harangued, they were bullied, they've been threatened, one's been moved out of his home, simply because they voted their conscience. And I, I am deeply concerned about the country that we are creating, when because a public official does what they believe is right, suddenly the mob descends to destroy their life. This is not America. And I'll tell you what, I don't care whether you're a Republican or Democrat or whether you believe Biden won or Biden lost. What, if you didn't vote, you need to stand up and say enough is enough. This is not who we are. This is the most free nation on the face of the globe because people have had courage to say every individual matters regardless of their opinions, and these people shouldn't be bullied and chased out of their homes for a vote in good conscience. All right, Phil Klein, Amistad Project, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Back to you, David. Thanks, Kerry. Really appreciate it. Great interview uh, by Kerry Sheffield, uh, anchor of uh, Just the News AM. I'll tell you what, uh, Phil, uh, hot under the collar there. And I got to tell you, there was a lot of anger at that press conference today. Rudy Giuliani taking the media to task to say, where are you? Where are you exactly? It's something we've been talking about on the show from an, anal uh, from an analytical perspective and from a news perspective. Uh, that We're trotting out evidence every single day. We're just covering the news. It's all we're doing, folks. We're covering the news. 
And yet, time and time again, the media just says, you know what, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. But what happens? Trickle, 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 trickle. This thing's not over, folks. This thing is not over. Back in a moment. More on voter fraud in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, Voter fraud. We hear all about it. We hear about election fraud. But I want to kind of dial back for a quick moment and figure out how we got there exactly. In other words, dead people are voting. What happened to the voter registration rolls in this country? How did we even get to this uh, point? Let's bring back uh, Eric Eggers uh, with the Government uh, Accountability Institute. uh, And, of course, wrote a book all about voter fraud. You can get it on Amazon.com. Just check, just like type his name. There it is, uh, fraud, how the left plans to steal the next election. Uh, Eric, great to see you again here on this, uh, this show that we do. It's always great to be with you, David, and your viewers. Well, uh, why don't... Before we get to the voter registration rolls, I know you listened to some of Giuliani's press conference today. We've been throwing a few sound bites of it out. I want to throw another one out here about these uncured ballots and some of the issues going on. Uh, here's Giuliani. If you've made a mistake in that ballot and you lived in Philadelphia or in Pittsburgh, uh, you were allowed to fix the mistake. But if you lived in the what would be considered more Republican or Trump parts of the state, you were given no such uh, right. One of our plaintiffs, Mr. Henry, cast a absentee ballot, and he failed to put it in the secure envelope inside. He just put it in open, naked. That ballot was cast aside because it was invalid, because that breaks the... um, privacy of the of of the vote in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia if they noticed that there wasn't an inner envelope they'd contact the voter and allow him to vote again or if he didn't fill it out completely or if he made a mistake and didn't sign his full name he was allowed to cure it there is no such provision under the law of Pennsylvania the Democrat Secretary of State made that up in order to maximize the votes in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and to minimize the votes in the other parts of the state. Clearly illegal, clearly voter fraud, easily provable, hundreds of witnesses, maybe thousands. Eric, what do you make of that? Uncured ballots equal protection here. So uh, I think it's certainly very compelling. And uh, Mr. Giuliani, I think, is correct to raise concerns about the performance of the Pennsylvania Secretary of State Uh, David, as you and I have discussed, right, this is not the first time Pennsylvania's had these problems. The Secretary of State previously had to resign and actually was fired in 2016 because they presided over a system that allowed illegal ballots to be cast and counted. Um, You know, let's hope for Americans' sake that we're not seeing a repeat of this. The question I would have, and again, you know, one of my many failings, David, is I'm not an attorney, but I would say that, you know, based on my understanding of the law, is that the threshold to be able to overturn uh, or you know, see legally substantive sort of uh, reform here, would you'd have to be able to prove that there were as many fraudulent ballots cast or as many problematic ballots cast through this process, this unequal or uneven curing, 
as the current margin, which Mr. Giuliani said was about 69,000. So from what I heard in the press conference, I didn't hear that level of evidence that they've found, but they've also had, you had Ms. Ellis up earlier and she said, look, this is our opening statement. We're asking for time to be able to prove our case in the court of law. And I certainly think most people would agree that uh, they deserve that, right? The country deserves no less. Yeah, for sure. I want to move on to voter registration rules. That's why we want to have you on. What do you, what can you tell people as it relates to why all these dead people uh, are, are voting? Uh, because it just, it just seems like a lot of work has to be done on the front end here rather than getting this in the mess on the back end. Yeah, I mean, the, the larger point, David, right, is how much are we checking that the people that are registered to vote in this country are legal voters, right? That is to say, they're still alive, they're legal citizens, uh, they're still residents of that state. Uh, and that puts an onus on not only the local election leaders, right, because it's so decentralized, so you have as many counties as you have, those how many supervisors of elections you have, but each state then needs to do that work and then cross-reference their voter rolls with other states' voter rolls, cross-reference their voter rolls with social security databases because they do a better job of figuring out, hey, if you're dead, we don't have to pay you anymore. So West Virginia did that, and they removed about 250,000 people from their voter rolls a few years ago. But it just speaks to how sloppy the process is. You, you and I have talked about the fact that you know the Supreme Court cited statistics. There's 24 million voter registrations in this country that are wrong, and that was eight years ago. So when you have states that allow same-day voter registration under the presumption that people are going to move there, and then people move and they don't take their names off the voter rolls, I mean, this is how we have the types of problems that we do. So people will say that it's not being done because they're going to say, well, maybe there's some nefarious reason for it that, you know, bad Democrats or Republicans, but many will say Democrats will, you know, don't want the voter registration rolls to change. Uh, well, that's certainly true. I think where where there is voter registration error, that's when you absolutely see uh, a recipe for an environment in which fraud can occur. We just saw people arrested in Los Angeles for voter registration fraud that was happening, right? And that's certainly not the first time that area, the Skid Row population of uh, Los Angeles is, is rife with that. People in housing populations, people in these lower socioeconomic environments, nursing homes. I mean, when you have groups of people that are concentrated, it just makes sense logistically. It's easier to commit large volumes of election fraud there, and that's how we know it occurs. Um, but so you're correct that like when those things don't happen, then it allows for fraud to occur. The argument for not doing it as routinely is that sometimes errors actually occur, which removes legal voters from the voter rolls. So obviously we, we should want all legal voters to be able to cast the ballot, but I think we should also want only legal voters to be able to cast the ballot. This tension between access and security is what I think we're seeing playing out in real time with very real consequences on a national level. So where does the responsibility lie? At the state level, clearly, but at the county level, at the precinct level? What's what's happening exactly on that? Yeah, I think the responsibility, ironically, David, lies with all of us, right? Like the states should do a good job of cross-referencing their voter rolls with social security databases and other state databases. The county administrators should do a good job as well, but also citizens need to do a good job of reporting when we move, right? If, if you have a relative that dies, you should make sure that their name is taken off the voter rolls. I've spoken to a number of conservative people who say they move and their name remains on the state of their previous residence. And I said, well, how come you didn't con contact the elections official to tell them to take your name off the list? And they said, well, it's none of their business. So, you know, there's a lot of different motivations that go into it. But I mean, we've seen evidence of people that vote in multiple states. There was a thousand double votes cast in Georgia. I've done reporting before about 2000 people in the state of Florida casting a ballot in 2016 and then casting a second ballot in a second state. So, I mean, if you want to crack down on election integrity, 
uh, and eliminate election fraud, you absolutely should start with the voter registration rolls. Mm. Eric Eggers, always great to see you. Thanks for coming on. You really provide some great perspective. Thank you very, very much. It's always a pleasure, David. All right. I'll tell you what, that's a... There's a lot to sift through, and I know there's a lot of frustration around the country when it comes to voter registration rules, so we'll see if uh, some things change. I can tell you one thing, that is a storyline to watch no matter what happens between Biden and Trump. Back in a moment with a Biden-Middle East situation. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. All right, uh, look, don't tell Donald Trump this, but if, if, if Joe Biden is, uh, actually does become president, what would it mean for Middle East relationships, specifically with Saudi Arabia, Iran, what about Israel? We want to discuss all of that with Eric Stackelbeck, our next guest, who is a host of The Watchman on TBN. He is The Watchman, and he joins us now. <laughs> Eric, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. David, great to be with you, as always. Well, you know, I feel like I'm living in two different universes. I've got the, the election fraud that we're covering, but then there is the, obviously the big potential that Biden could be president. If, if that is the case, what are we looking at here? What should we know from a Middle East standpoint? Why don't you kind of give me the, the aerial view, if you will? Yeah, David, it's very interesting. We have all of these election controversies in the U.S., but the Middle East, the most strategic and volatile region in the world, never sleeps, and that includes right now. I think, number one, the big thing that everyone's talking about in Israel, and by the way, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is on the ground in Israel as we speak. What everyone is talking about there right now is if Biden becomes president, does he re-enter that disastrous Iran nuclear deal? Now, he's made very clear, David, that he wants to do just that. He wants to get back in the Iran deal that President Trump, thankfully, pulled out of in May 2018. To my mind, this would be a disaster, David, for a few reasons. Uh, number one, it would push back against all the progress we've made against Iran over the past few years in terms of very tough sanctions against the regime, putting Iran on the ropes uh, and their economy on the ropes through these tough sanctions by the Trump administration, taking out the terror master, Qasem Soleimani, earlier this year, supporting and standing with Israel. So I think this has been a very effective strategy by the Trump administration. But a Biden administration is going to take a different tack. They're going to try to re-engage uh, with Iran. Uh, and Iran is kind of licking their chops, David, I have to say. They are looking forward to the prospect of a Biden presidency. I think that's pretty clear. And we know now that Iran is enriching uranium at a rapid pace, which far outpaces what is permitted under that nuclear deal. You know, you mentioned Iran is licking their chops. What about Saudi Arabia and Israel? They got to be a bit concerned about what potentially could go on here. Yeah, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying all the right things right now. And he's saying, look, I've had a warm personal relationship with Joe Biden for some 40 years. The Saudis, on the other hand, David, very outwardly concerned. We had a top Saudi official say just yesterday that if Iran acquires the bomb, we are going nuclear, meaning 
Saudi Arabia would acquire the bomb, and he said you can count on other nations in the Middle East to pursue nuclear weapons as well. That is a nightmare scenario. David, can you imagine a nuclear arms race in the world's most chaotic region, the Middle East? That's exactly what we will have if Iran acquires the bomb. And according to various uh, experts and atomic agencies, Iran is not far off from breaking out, if they so choose, and acquiring nuclear weapons. And here's the other part of the problem in the equation. Joe Biden doesn't have the best record necessarily when it comes to foreign policy decisions uh, in the past, Eric. No, he's been wrong, in my view, David, on nearly every major foreign policy decision over the past several decades. I think that's pretty clear. With Iran, he's going to take kind of a, a soft stance He's not going to have the big stick. He's going to have a soft stick with the Iranians. He's going to say, look, let's get back to the table. Basically, we will give you things if you leave us alone and be nice. That's mm -hmm. what the Obama administration said to the Iranian regime. It did not work. As the United States gave David, look, released billions and billions of dollars in sanctions relief to the Iranian regime. That sanctions relief was used by Iran not to build schools and playgrounds inside Iran, but to destroy schools and playgrounds in Israel and to fund terror throughout the region. I think it's pretty clear appeasement of this regime does not work. And really, historically, David, with a tyrannical regime, history shows us appeasement never works. But I fear we would return to that strategy under a Biden administration. Yeah, and I wonder how much pressure Biden's going to have with the AOCs of the world and, you know, the far left of his party to pulling him. Uh, as a matter of fact, look, there's a headline I want to show you from, uh, you know, you mentioned Pompeo over there in Israel. Look at this from justthenews.com. Pompeo says administration views international efforts to divest from Israel as anti-Semitic. I mean, look, uh, those days may be long gone under a Biden administration. It may, be, may seem very different. I mean, AOC doesn't want to see headlines like that. Yeah, you think of, the, David, this is a key point. I'm glad you brought it up. You think of AOC. You think of Ilan Omar, the congresswoman from Minnesota. They are outwardly anti-Israel. Rashida Tlaib from Michigan is another one. They are openly anti-Israel. In the case of Tlaib and Ilan Omar, I'd say they're openly anti-Semitic. So this is a very vocal and increasingly influential flank in the Democratic Party, and you'd imagine they'd be in Joe Biden's ear, which to me is a very troubling thought. Another interesting point here, David, by the way, we've heard a lot of reports the past few days that President Trump had been apparently considering or at least inquiring with his team, his cabinet, about potential military strikes against Iran's nuclear facilities. I think we have to mention that. Now, I don't know how much credence there is to that, but I think the president in this case is doing what any either Democrat or Republican leader of the free world would do. He was informed that Iran is ramping up their nuclear weapons activities, and he's saying, okay, we have all options on the table. If it gets to a point where it's an imminent threat, what are our options? He was in particular, David, talking about this Natanz nuclear plant where Iran is enriching uranium at a very rapid pace. But any Democrat president would do the same thing. Barack Obama used to say all options are on the table yeah. with Iran's nuclear program. I found it very interesting that the mainstream media is making such a fuss about that. He's just being a president and protecting the American people was President Trump to at least discuss options. No, for sure. Hey, Eric, we have about a minute left or so, a little less. I want to give you a moment to talk about the Watchmen. Uh, you're doing trend-setting stuff uh, well before COVID in Israel, and of course, you're still trying to figure out how all the maneuver all of that. But tell me about the Watchmen uh, because it's it's really a trend-setting show, and especially on YouTube, it's really taken off. 
Yeah, thank you so much, David. Hey, the Watchmen, we are on the ground in Israel, in Iraq, in Jordan, across the Middle East, bringing you the inside story of what's happening over there and why it matters to us right here in the United States. As you mentioned, because of COVID, we haven't been able to travel over the past several months, but we will be back, God willing, in 2021. And just bringing the inside story, not only the security issues that you and I are talking about, David, geopolitical, but also biblical archaeology, history. I kind of put my Indiana Jones hat on. It's a lot of fun. So you can check us out at WatchmanTV.com and on TBN uh, every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Eric Stackelbeck, the Indiana Jones of biblical uh, of biblical history there. Uh, that, that's a visual. Thank, <laughs> thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you, All right, uh, don't mess with him. He's got the whip and everything. All right, I don't know what this was. Is this how they do a whip? Anyhow, uh, when we come back, uh, we're gonna get that censorship sign out. I'll tell you what, Madison, our producer, I mean, she, boom, she's got it. Back in a moment. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks, serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for the censored. Last sip. You know, I have to tell you, uh, enough with the Twitter stuff, okay? Everything seems to be disputed. Uh, but then there are certain things that are not disputed. Uh, so Twitter's all over the place. Like, for example, here's what's not in dispute, okay? I like all-you-can-eat buffets. You're not going to dispute that, okay? Th that's fact. Uh, but, but here, apparently, according to Twitter, are some other facts that they have not disputed. Uh, take a look at uh, some of these tweets here. Uh, first of all, I want to read from Rashida Tlaib. She says this, Lindsey Graham's attempted, uh, attempted to commit voter fraud. That's what she says. Wait, wait, I'm looking down there. Do I see it disputed? No, I don't see anything. It's Twitter not saying that's disputed. It is disputed. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, you've got, um, oh, look at this, uh, Jim Acosta says President Trump is uh, pretending he still has a chance to still win the 2020 election, but that's not true. Just a short while ago in the Rose Garden, the president looked, uh, took no questions and appeared to come out in front of the cameras to soothe his damaged ego. I think that's disputed. Is it not? Apparently not, according to Twitter. And then uh, there's this from uh, our good friend Ilhan Omar. She describes Trump campaign events as, quote, Klan rallies. Where is the dispute on that from Twitter? Nothing. But come on. Donald Trump says something, and here you go. Voter fraud in Detroit is rampant, says Donald Trump, and has been for many years. And oh, look at that. Twitter puts up the claim about how this tweet is disputed. Folks, give me a break. That is called censorship. That's right, censorship. Here's the thing. Are you telling me there hasn't been voter fraud in Detroit for years? Look, it's his opinion, it's his analysis based on some facts from the past. So why are you dis putting dispute there? I get it, some people might dispute it, but if you're gonna dispute that, then why are we not disputing the fact that, I don't know, hmm, Trump events are Klan rallies. Really, Twitter, you're not gonna put that up? Let me read you a few things. I've just got them here, I just wrote them down because I had nothing better to do before, before the show. Here are some things that you could put up as disputed, all right? Pineapple on pizza. 
in the control room. Are we, is that disputed? I mean, that's not, that's not, it's, it's disputed, I'm told. All right. Uh, did Carol Baskin actually kill her husband? That's disputed. Uh, that's fine. Is Jimmy Hoffa buried in the end zone at Giants Stadium? Disputed. Cats, better than dogs. Disputed. Who's the best Star Wars character? That is disputed for sure. And finally, the classic, Coke versus Pepsi. That is disputed. Come on, Twitter. Get with the program. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, look, I, I get it, all right? You know, you go to the grocery store, you got to wear a mask. Fine. You know, you go to the laundromat. Not that I'm in the laundromat that often, but you got to wear a mask. And now in Pennsylvania, wait a minute, you have to wear a mask. Wait for it. Inside your own home? Let's bring in Daniel Payne with JustTheNews.com. Hey, Daniel, great to see you, sir. Dave, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, explain this new mask mandate. I mean, this has uh, constitutional question marks written all over it, I would think. Yeah, you know, mask mandates, of course, have, uh, are pretty ubiquitous in the country. Uh, they've been that way for several months. Uh, Pennsylvania has had a mask mandate on the books uh, for months as well. Uh, but the Pennsylvania Department of Health uh, just this week issued a revised version of that mandate. And what it says is that uh, the mask order must be applied uh, not just to public areas, like as you said, grocery stores or where you go where there's lots of people, but basically any indoor venue uh, where there are people outside of your uh, household. And the Department of Health did confirm to us that that includes private homes. Wow. So then at that point, I mean, let's be honest, how in the world are you going to enforce that? I mean, that I mean, I don't even know what to say about enforcement or fines or or how that works in practice. Yeah, it seems like they're aware of that problem as well. The Department of Health told us that that there is uh, there's not really any plans to proactively enforce it. They're hoping it will be self uh, enforced. Uh, but, you know, obviously, if they did try to enforce it uh, across the entire state, it would it would probably end up being a logistical nightmare. So it seems like they're aware of that. Right. And so just so I understand for other people out there, they can get more information where obviously just the You've got an, an article up about it. Yeah, we had one up yesterday, a report on it. And uh, and it's uh, got a link to the mandate as well. So uh, they can review it there for themselves. All right. Daniel Payne, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dave. All right. And once again, he said the link uh, to the mandate. Very important because at justthenews.com, what we do is we have a dig in feature where, hey, you know what? We're reporting something. Let us show you where we actually got it from so you can see see it for yourself. All right. uh, Be sure to tune in, by the way, tonight, seven o'clock Eastern for Republic at Risk. We're going to have Dr. Gina Loudon. Uh, She'll be there hosting and joined by you've heard of him, John Solomon from Just the News. I know him well. Uh, also, attorney Boris Epstein will be there and David J. Harris Jr., complete with the J, David J. Harris Jr., and also uh, Amanda Head. That is tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern right here on Real America's Voice. Hope you uh, will tune in. Until next time, which is tomorrow, it's going to be a fun Friday. Wait till you see what we got planned. See you tomorrow.